We have been basically talking about what the Bible has to say about gender and sexuality. And I realize this topic, like the one we did before, critical theory and uh, what's going on in our culture are sensitive topics. And my goal in this is, as a Christian, is to do two things, is to be truthful, to truthfully and accurately convey what the Bible says. And secondly, to do it with respect and compassion. I know there are people listening, watching, and I applaud you for wanting to understand more what do Christians think about this, and you may disagree. You may not share a Christian worldview. And I want you to know that we wanna be respectful of that, that uh, we don't have to disagree or to agree on these things to be friends. So that's been our purpose in this. One of the things that I've, I've shown you this slide every time, and the reason I'm doing it is, I, I really want us to remember, the picture that comes to your mind when we talk about these subjects has a lot to do with how we will react. For example, the picture that I've chosen that's in the upper left is really people who have an issue or have an ideology, and there tends to be in our nation a lot of hostility between competing ideologies. And so when you see that scene and this topic comes up, if that's what comes into your mind, you think me and them, confrontational, divisive topic. And that's true about the issue. These issues are dividing our culture. However, there are also people like the picture on the right, in fact, Far, statistically, far more people are like the picture on the right than the protest on the left. I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, but statistically speaking, there are far more people who are just wrestling with a real human issue in real human life. And if you have that picture in your head, I think that we will not react differently in terms of what is true. We will very much change our tone and very much uh, change the way we approach it. And I would suggest, I know that not everybody that speaks to you about this issue or confronts you about this issue is the picture on the right, but that would be, my suggestion is let's let that be our default setting. Let's let that be what we think of first. I thought this, uh, this point that I've made is, is kind of the short version of it. Speak truth to the issue speak compassion to people. Speak truth to issues, speak compassion to people. And both are necessary, but let's be careful to do it in the right sphere. And so speak truth to issues, speak compassion to people. Kevin DeYoung in his book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And it's, it's actually a lot more robust book than just that one topic. But this is interesting, the sexual revolution now we're talking about the picture in the left, the, you know, the protest picture, has been no great respecter of civil and religious liberties. This is one of the great ironies of tolerance in our era. Sadly, we may discover that there is nothing quite so intolerant as tolerance. And I know that resonates with a lot of people because you realize that, wait a minute, the ideology of tolerance turns out to be very intolerant. He says, does this mean the church should expect doom and gloom? That depends. For conservative Christians, Orthodox Christians, 
historical Christians, the ascendancy of same-sex marriage, this actually applies to our whole topic, he just happened to be talking about this one issue, will likely mean marginalization, name-calling, or worse, and that has begun, and that will continue. Your beliefs as Christians will cause you to be marginalized in this culture, but that's to be expected. Jesus promised us no better than he himself received. In John 15, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, the world hated me, and I, I wanna remind you of that, because you're gonna, a lot of people wanna say, oh, I like the nice, cuddly, teddy bear Jesus, but I just wanna remind you, you know they crucified him, right? And so the point is, he said, the world hates me, and it will hate you. Now, Christians aren't pessimists, we're not nihilists, but we do understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as loving and life-giving as it is, is not going to be well-received by people who live in the kingdom of self and uh, see the world differently. He said, the church is sometimes the most vibrant, the most articulate, and the most holy when the world presses down on her the hardest. In fact, historically speaking, and this is still true today, North Korea, China, church is growing faster there than in Europe, for example, and they are hugely oppressed. Traditionally, the church grows and is pure when she has been oppressed, but not always. Sometimes, and for some Christians, when the world wants to press us into its mold, we jump right in and get comfy. This is the essential challenge. The issue is not the challenge for Christians. Issues come, issues will go. Nations come and nations will go. All these things will pass away, but our faithfulness endures. The key question for Christians isn't, is this gonna go well in America for us or is it not gonna go well? Oh, we'll speak in the public square, we'll try to speak life-giving words, but that's not really the question. The question is, will we be faithful? So I think DeYoung does a good job. And so on the issue, this is our challenge, being faithful to the truth of God's word. The rest of this lesson though, I really wanna to speak to people. So we've spoken about the uh, sexuality issues, we spoke about gender issues last time. This time I'd really like to get practical. So I wanna go over a couple of, of principles to keep in mind because as we tackle practical situations, we want them to be informed by the biblical principles. There's not gonna be a manual in the Bible that says how do I handle this exact situation? I'm gonna go through the five most frequently asked to me questions about this issue and then we'll take your questions as well. But I'd really like to get to the people. Well, needless to say, four hours is hard to cover this topic so we had a narrow purpose. I hope that you now understand the dominant belief system driving gender and sexuality in the public square. You understand the sexual narrative about gender and sexuality. I believe that we understand the biblical teaching on issues of gender and sexual morality. And in this lesson, I'd like to address some of the hard questions that come up about work and family. The big principle that I really want you to take away from this is, when it comes to the Bible, the verses that say, you shall do this, you shall not do this. This is what's consistent with God, this is what's not. This isn't an argument about verses. Because most of the people that wanna say God affirms uh, 
a gay identity. Uh, people want to say God affirms transgender identity. Want to look at specific verses in the Bible and say, that doesn't mean what you think it means. The point I want to make is that's really the tail end of that argument. The bigger issue is what does the Bible say thematically through the whole Bible? And here's the way I framed it. And each week we've talked about this. The fundamental issue in Genesis chapter three with the fall of humanity was self versus God. Who's gonna be God? And Adam and Eve, the serpent, remember what the serpent said to them? He said, you can be like God. And they said, okay, I'll do that. We will be God, self versus God. And that's called the fall. That's when sin entered the world. And in fact, if you wanna think about sin in this way, you can. Sin is putting self on the throne versus God. Honoring self rather than God. Finding an identity that I create rather than the one that my creator gave me. And I can assure you, you cannot come up with an identity of your own that is anywhere near as glorious as the one your creator gave you. But that's the essence of sin. And so the story of the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament is basically God making a way through his son bearing our sin on a cross being raised from the dead so that we too could be reconciled to God and the burden of our rebellion, that we could be forgiven for our rebellion against God. That's the story of redemption. And so let me take you to a couple of passages because I want you to, I want you to see this. And I want you to, when you read the Bible now, I want you to think about it in those terms and you're gonna see this a lot. But for example, he said to them all, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. In other words, you have to turn away from the worship of self, take up your cross. What's a cross a sign of? Death dying, being crucified. You'll see that again here in a minute. Daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What's he saying? All he's saying is, is if you want to find fulfillment and authentic flourishing, human flourishing, you actually have to deny yourself. You have to put yourself to death and live for me. It, it's paradoxical, isn't it? He said, but everyone who puts their self to death and surrenders to me will have the full life, thriving. Paul in Romans 6 explains this a little bit better. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Do you see the connection? This is what Jesus is talking about. You gotta take self off the throne and you need to put your old self to death. The old identity what I used to be. In fact, one of the lists of sins that we talked about in 1 Corinthians 6 goes through and it says, for don't you know that homosexual offenders, sexually immoral, gossips, greedy, slanderers, etc., will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you have been washed you have been recreated new in Christ. Why? Because we died to self. And you see this, he said, our old self was crucified with him so that our sin, rebellion, 
might be done away with and we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no mastery over him. In the same way, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's that saying? My old self needs to die. Christianity is not a self-improvement program. You will see, hear some preachers talking about Christianity as though it's here to make you a better person. And that could not be less biblical. I mean, it's just not what the Bible teaches. It's not the story of redemption. That's really missing the point, missing the point badly. Jesus didn't come to make better people. He came to make brand new people. Remember John chapter three. I'm just telling you, throwing a few things out. You read your New Testament. You're gonna see this everywhere. Nicodemus says to him, what do we need to do? He said, you have to be born again. What's he saying? You have to die to self. You have to be born to God, raised to walk in newness of life. He said, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body and don't obey its evil desires. Now we finally get to acts of sin. Rebellion against God, putting self above God, is the essence of sin. It plays itself out in specific actions. That's why arguing against the verses that say, listen, this is not uh, the way you live in the kingdom of God, and this is not the way you live in the kingdom of God, and oh, by the way, compassion is how you live in the kingdom of God, forgiveness is how you live in the kingdom. All those verses are merely spelling out something bigger. So when you read the popular books that say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say what you think it does. Oh, it says exactly what you think it says. The point is, you can't just take the tail of the dog and try to cut that off and say, I don't have a dog anymore because the Bible is talking about something far bigger. And so when you die to self, sin shall not be your master because you are now under grace. This is a beautiful picture. Well, here's the thing. The temptation is huge for us as human beings. And we all do this and not just on issues of sexuality or gender, what Ever rebellion we happen to be caught up with. Some of you may say, I don't have same-sex attraction. Some of you may say, I don't have gender dysphoria. But you might have pride. You might have greed. You might have lust. You might have covetousness. You might, we all have something as a result of putting self on the throne. We did until we've crucified ourself. In other words, we've surrendered ourself. The problem is as human beings, we are rationalizing creatures. And so we'd really like to say, can I do a little of both? And I really hesitated to cover this and I'll try to do it fairly quickly and move on to some practical things. But I think it's really important for you to understand because this isn't just people who don't have a Christian worldview disagreeing with people who are Christians. There are people within the Christian church who have a disagreement about this. And so the question is, can't we just agree to disagree? And the answer to that is, most of the time, yes. 99% of the things that Christians argue with other Christians about are things that are not essentials of our faith. They are differences of opinion. They are differences of understanding. They're cultural differences. 
for heaven's sake, they're musical differences. You know, we basically argue about how many times should you sing the same verse in a praise song. Okay, that one's legitimate. All right, just saying that one is legitimate. But you get my point. We can just agree to disagree and, and have the foundations of the faith. Here's the catch. There are some things that that can't happen with. And so here's my line for what can we agree to disagree about. What did Jesus and James and Paul and Peter and John, all the writers of the New Testament, what did they get really adamant about? You know, Jesus said some really harsh things. And he said it to other religious people. He said some harsh things to non-religious people too. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus is pretty much a truth and compassion, but he's just gonna tell you the way it is, right? Well, the th- what are the things that they got vehement about? Two issues, but they're really the same thing. One was people who were putting hurdles in the way of people finding Christ. So the modern equivalent of that would be, you can't come to Jesus until you get all the sin out of your life. You gotta clean your act up before you can come to Jesus. That made Jesus very angry. And Paul and Peter, James, John, all the New Testament writers. The other thing, which is essentially the same thing, but it's on the other side, and that was to tell people, you can keep your rebellion. You can keep your sin. Those two things, which are really the same thing, is basically keeping people from actually meeting Christ. On the one hand, it was keeping them from even getting in the door, and the other hand, it was telling them, you don't have to obey Christ. You, don't, you can keep yourself on the throne and God. They're both the same thing. They're keeping the lost sheep from finding the shepherd. That's what Jesus got really upset about. So, for example... And this is, I take this very seriously. So in other words, don't make rules that the Bible doesn't make. And for heaven's sakes, don't tell people that it's okay to continue to serve their self when it's not. Because both of those things fit this passage. Matthew 18, this scares me to death. I think about this all the time when I teach. He called the little child, had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, these are the disciples, unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying? You can't have yourself on the throne. Kids are selfless. Well, till they hit the terrible twos. But you get my point. They're selfless. And he said, that's what you need to do. You gotta humble yourself. Gotta take your pride. Gotta take your self-centeredness. Gotta take your, you know, your uh, greed. All those things, they have to die. You need to become like a child. He said, and whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Now he's talking about evangelism. In other words, there are a lot of people who are hurting, who are lost. I don't mean that as an insult. What I mean is Jesus says, I'm not dividing the world into good and bad. I'm dividing the world into people that have come to me and people that have not found their way. I think it's a very gentle, generous way to look at the world. He says, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things are gonna happen, but woe to the man through whom they come. There are some things, and what I see Jesus saying is, do not cause people to sin. Do not tell people that their sin is okay, and do not tell people that they can't come to Jesus until they get it all cleaned up. Both of those things were big deal for Jesus. One more passage. This is Jesus again in the book of Revelation. First three chapters of Revelation are worth reading. These are words of Jesus speaking. He's speaking to a church, speaking to us. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. He says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and you're doing more than you did at first. So what's he saying? He said, you believers in Thyatira, he said, you believers, you guys are really out there and you are serving the community, you're preaching the word, you're caring for those who are in need. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I left out what he has to say as it goes on because this is, this is not cuddly Jesus after this. This is the I'm upset. You're corrupting my children. And I think all of us who are parents understand that kind of anger when you see someone corrupting your children. So I'm gonna move on from this, but the problem with this is these are not issues. Our pride, our lust, our greed, our sexual immorality, these are not things that we can disagree about. And that's why this topic is important. And I wanna be gracious about it, but I cannot sugarcoat this because Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. Here's the problem though. Let's get really practical now. We want to balance, and rightfully so, we want to balance truth and grace, but I'm gonna use different words, our witness and our friendship. So now I'm gonna go back and I wanna focus on just the issues around sexuality and gender. You understand this topic is way bigger than this, but for the purpose of this class, I wanna focus on it. And in these topics, because you all know people who have built their identity on their sexuality or built their identity on a gender identity rather than on a Christ-centered identity. Okay, that happens. I mean, there, that is happening in the world. So that's a reality. And here's the balance. And it is a balance because both matter. Truth and grace, here are the words I wanna use. Your witness as a Christian and your friendship with people who don't necessarily agree with you, who don't necessarily follow Jesus. Those are both really important. And finding the balance in that is the challenge for us. I would urge you, read the Gospels. See how Jesus found the balance, because he did. He didn't say, witness doesn't matter, I just wanna be uh, a friend. I just wanna love, love, love. And he didn't say, forget the love thing, you gotta get the truth first. He said, you are called to do both of these things. And our challenge is, and all the questions, this is where I wanna come at it from, is we are seeking balance in two things, both of which are non-negotiable. Love is not negotiable. 
Friendship is not negotiable and neither is our witness or truth and we have to bring those things together, okay? Here's the message that I've been giving. We tend to talk about what we're against and that's okay, most people do. Most, most ideologies define themselves. Some people would argue all cultures define themselves by what they're against. But basically, we do that. What I really wanted to point out here is, you're gonna see two narratives on these issues. You're gonna see a world narrative or a self story, and you're gonna see a biblical narrative. And I wanna suggest to you, we need to do a better job telling the biblical narrative, rather than just saying, I disagree with the cultural narrative. We obviously disagree with the cultural narrative, but we need to tell the other narrative. And here's the essence of it. Listen to what Jesus says. We believe this to be true. And it's a message hurting people. Remember my picture on the right-hand side, need to hear. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home, brothers, sisters, mother or father or children or, or stuff for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. In fact, you'll receive all these things. Oh, and you'll also get some persecution thrown in. Jesus is very honest. And in the age to come, eternal life. What's Jesus saying? He said, you have a family in the church. Even if you have to give up your family, and there are people who give up their family. Rosaria Butterfield, just to use this on this topic, who was gay, was a tenured professor at Syracuse in women's studies, had a live-in girlfriend, wife, this is before you could be legally same-sex married here, and gave up everything when she became a Christian. She lost all of that. In fact, the most convicting line in that book was, I gave up all of that to follow Christ. What did you give up? Well, the truth is we've all put to death ourselves. We've all given up something. We have all turned our backs on some things to follow Jesus Christ. But Jesus promises this, and we need to talk about this more. Do you believe that he can follow through on what he says is no matter what you have given up here, I will give you more. I'll give you a bigger family called the church. And church, we need to be that family to people that are struggling. But listen to this, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, and this man knew suffering. If you don't know anything about Paul's story, this guy had a worse life than all of us put together. He said, I consider our sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. One of the key ideas here is when you are reconciled with Christ, everything you had before is nothing. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we are like children whose parents have baked them a beautiful, delicious birthday cake, but instead we've made mud pies and we eat those instead. And that's what it looks like to live in the self instead of living as to be who Christ says you are. And that's what the scriptures promise. We need to talk about that more. Some of the books on the list are from people who are Christians now, Rosaria Butterfield, of course, but Ed Shaw and Sam Alberry, uh, other people who have become Christians have given up that whole lifestyle and will tell you, I have joy. Is my life easy? No, I haven't met a Christian yet that said my life is easy. 
In other words, we don't expect everything to be all roses. We understand that we have turned away from sin and it's being pruned out of our lives, but they are joyful and we need to talk about that more. So when it comes to same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, and then having a gay identity, this is the story of our culture. Same-sex attraction is at the core of who you are as a person. It is integral to your identity. It's probably the only thing that you think that way about in our culture. There's nothing else in our culture that, that you have as an attribute that is based in your body that you think this defines me as a person. Same-sex behavior and a same-sex identity are the authentic expression of who you are. You should surrender to these feelings and live out your gay identity. That is the narrative of our culture and it's compelling. If you're in pain, and most people are in pain, they have incongruence in their life. Most people are attracted to the opposite sex. I'm attracted to the same sex. This is, any way you look at it, this is a problem. This is a psychological problem, an emotional problem. It's a social problem. And so people are wrestling with it. This is the picture on the right. It can seem very comforting in the short term to have someone say, it's okay, that's who you are, you're fine the way you are, just go live out a gay identity. They don't tell you, the fine print at the bottom is, results may vary, right? In other words, this may not turn out like you think. But here's what I want us to be saying, this is the Jesus story. Same-sex attraction is part of your experience. I'm not gonna say it doesn't exist or goes away or you did something wrong to experience same-sex attraction. Whether you're born with it, 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 that argument is a waste of time. The point is most people, not all, but most people don't experience a sense of choice. Well, the fact that you experience these feelings, it is part of your experience and it's okay but like many other experiences, it does not define who you are. You have choices of what am I going to do with this? When, when somebody walks in and says, I have a problem with pornography, it seems to have a hold on my life. Somebody walks in and has problems with something, name something else, anything else. This is the Christian, this is the worldly life and this is what every Christian was is I'm living for this. It does not define who you are. That's a powerful message. In Jesus, you are loved beyond comprehension and we are all called to surrender every aspect of our life into obedience for the Christ who loved you enough to die for you. And he promises this is where you find true freedom and lasting joy. That's the story that the Bible tells. We need to tell that story. I would like all of us to memorize that story. I'm not saying those words, but you get my point, is let's go present a compelling option because that's what Jesus presents. Not everyone will believe, not everyone will do that. That's what Jesus also tells us. But the point is, it doesn't do any good to say, look, that secular thing, it's a lie. Good luck. Hope you can wrestle this out on your own. That's not a biblical point of view, this is. When it comes to gender dysphoria, here's the story of the culture. Gender incongruence, gender dysphoria, feeling like 
I'm in the wrong body. My gender and my body don't match is a sign of who you are. Do you see the identity thing again? You must embrace this identity. You have no choice. Rather than how you are, it is central to your identity. It is a naturally occurring difference as part of the diversity of human beings. In other words, embrace it. You're fine just the way you are. Most people that struggle with gender dysphoria realize, I am not fine the way I am. And I don't mean by that, that, oh, I'm a bad person because I have these feelings. That is not my point at all. You have those feelings, those feelings are real. The difference is, is that you have choices about what to do with them. This is not your only choice. The biblical narrative is this, we are all created in the image of God, we are masterpieces. And I can assure you, before I became a Christian, I did not feel like a masterpiece. I felt like my life was a mess and I internalized it that I am a mess. People that are wrestling with gender dysphoria do not have a high view of themselves. But here's the biblical narrative. You should, because you're literally created in the image of God. These feelings you have are how you are. They're not authentically who you are. You are who God says you are. Sin has disordered and marred every one of us. Because of God's love for us, Jesus invites each of us to the great adventure of restoration that erases the effects of sin. Every one of us is a beautiful work of art being restored. Every one of us turned away and made a different choice than to say, I guess I'm just this. I guess I'm just a slave to this. I guess I'm just an addict for that. You see what I'm saying? This is the biblical narrative, and this is what we need to be talking about. We need to present a powerful, compelling, biblical alternative and say, you have a choice because a lot of people are being told you only have one choice and it's a lie. And shame on us if we can't go into the public square and say, I wanna tell you what Jesus says is a better way and I want you to know I care about you and you have a choice. And if you wanna come on this path, you can come with all the rest of us. That's our challenge. Well, let's talk about some questions. So that's background. In other words, I, I really think it's important because you're gonna have to figure out on your own how to handle situations, but I want these principles in our head. My friend has just told me they're gay. How should I respond? I'm quoted from Sam Alberry, uh, who did this himself and who has had this happen. This is great advice. Telling another person you're gay is normally a big deal for someone. If the person you're telling is a Christian, it's likely to be an even bigger deal. I would also argue if it's a family member, it's likely to be an even bigger deal because there's emotional investment. Many people assume Christians are anti-gay and it's not a huge leap from that to think Christians must be against gay people themselves. So the first thing you should do is thank them for being open and trusting you with something so personal. It is a privilege to be told something. Just recognize the vulnerability when someone says to you, I have these feelings, and they don't know how that's going to be received. I think this is great advice. It is also important to assure them that their fears of being rejected by you are unfounded. Knowing that they are gay should not mean you stop liking them or stop being their friend. In the interest of full disclosure, and especially if they ask you what you think, you might say, Christians have a different view on matters of sexuality than the culture as a whole, and I'd be happy to chat with you about that but let's not do that right now. In other words, it's okay 
to be a friend and be a witness. And you really don't have to do one before the other. And you really don't have to do them at the same time. Recognize the humanity of the person that you're talking to. You can be friends with people who have a gay identity. You can be friends with people who are transgender. You can be friends with people who are greedy. You can be friends with porn addicts. You can be friends with a lot of people. It doesn't mean that you no longer believe the truth. What it means is, is that I care about you as a human being. I think this is really great advice, is to be in the moment, just be compassionate. Thank you for telling me about that. And then if you read the book, by the way, I'd recommend this book because it's like about 1 16th of an inch thin. I mean, this is an easy book to read. And it's got a lot of good ideas about this and very biblical approach to it. So how should you respond? Respond as a friend. Witness will come, but respond as a friend. Witness must come, by the way, at some point, but it doesn't have to come now. What limits should I set with my adult gay child? This gets really difficult in family situations. What limits should I set with my adult gay child? Uh, Mark Yarhouse has some good advice on this, and then I wanna elaborate just a little bit. Parents vary considerably in whether or how they set limits. I'm gonna talk about Christian parents. And this is true. What he's saying here is absolutely true. For example, some parents focus primarily on their relationship with their adult child, not setting any limits around events such as holiday gatherings, birthday parties, and so on. Their child is welcome, as is his or her partner. The parents may not approve, but they do not set ground rules as a way of expressing that disapproval. Let me translate it into our terminology. Preserve the friendship relationship and setting limits on participation is not the way that they will witness. I'm talking about parents that actually believe that you know this is not, uh, this, this is rebellion against God, like my sin was rebellion against God, but that they don't see those limits as part of their witness. This is a legitimate way of looking at this situation. Here's another way that I see this uh, also. Other parents may have little to no contact with their adult child. They may prefer this over the pain they feel when they see their child with their partner. This actually, I think he's got this one a little wrong. In my experience, there are two reasons why parents and adult gay children don't have much interaction. One can be that the parents find this too painful and they say, look, I love you, but separation is better. More often in my experience, I'm telling, giving you one guy's experience now, it's because the adult gay child says, if you don't affirm me, change your beliefs about my lifestyle, you don't love me, therefore I am separating from you. And, I, and this is heartrending either direction, but this option also happens, just not much contact. And then finally, most of the time, more often, parents set some limits based on their beliefs and values. Because you have to remember, you need to be friends. You, need, you have a relationship. You need to respect someone else's opinion. You don't have to think it's right. But that goes both ways. Is children also need to respect their parents' beliefs. So how does one work this out? And I think your house has a good point. More often, parents set some limits based upon their beliefs and values. This will often be expressed through what they do and do not allow at family gatherings, holidays, and other events. But the essence of this, he's gonna say this later, 
is let's keep a relationship with mutual respect. And if you don't have mutual respect from both sides, this won't, the relationship is not likely to go. My advice is preserve the relationship as long as there is mutual respect. In other words, and this is my advice, you're getting a personal opinion based on my understanding of biblical principles. You may disagree and you may take a different route and I'm not condemning you for that. I'm saying though that you will not preserve a relationship that's entirely one-sided. It just doesn't happen. So I'd strive for that. My bias is always toward preserve the relationship. But these are choices people make and here's the point I wanna make. Let's give each other some grace in this in the sense that not every Christian parent will handle this the same way. And the last thing a family needs is criticism from other Christians that you're not handling it the right way. We can have our differences of opinion, but it, that is not what is needed in that moment. There will be some parents who for whatever reason won't have much contact and they're gonna be hurting. There are gonna be some parents who are, in, are at look like their witness is compromised because they are continuing that relationship. Let's not judge that because we don't know how that balance is playing out in their life. And there are gonna be others that look like, oh my goodness, how could you be so unfeeling? We don't know the mutuality of respect. I guess I would say is on this is there's no one right way. There's a right principle, a balance, but you can't prescribe a balance. We're each gonna do this a little differently and let's be graceful to each other. What families going through these difficulties need is prayer and support. They don't need criticism. Now, I'm not lecturing you saying you're doing that. I'm just saying, let's show grace to one another. These are very hard decisions and I wouldn't want someone second guessing my decision who didn't know as much about it. Let's err on the side of grace. Should Christians attend gay weddings? So Sam Alberry uh, used this quote to kick us off. First, and again, this is a balance between witness and friendship. Everything in this is gonna be a balance to two important things. And listen to how he addresses it. First, we wanna be careful as Christians not to appear to endorse something we understand to be a sin in God's eyes. Okay, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you say it's not a sin. Understand that, but Christians think it is. Let's just have a mutual respect for each other's point of view. And so you have witness. And he's saying it is important to be careful not to compromise your witness. Attending a gay wedding could easily look as if we are commending and celebrating gay marriage. We just shifted from people to issue. And witness is important. Listen to what else he says. But our public stance on gay marriage what we speak to the issue is not the only important factor to consider. That's right, we are balancing truth and grace. Witness, friendship, or witness and relationship are the words I'm using here. We also wanna take great care to preserve and deepen our friendships with gay friends so that we have continuing opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. So we must be careful to maintain a good witness on this issue but that will also involve being careful about making sure they know that their friendship is valued. In other words, what he, all he's saying is, this is a hard decision because it is a balance, isn't it? And we will probably have different opinions about this. 
I know that there are uh, friends of mine who have chosen to go and express friendship, but who haven't changed their witness. And I know there are some that say, I can't in good conscience do this. And once again, let's show each other a little bit of grace. Balance is hard to achieve. And what I think is balance and what you think is balance may not be quite the same. Christians are going to take both directions depending on their circumstances in this. And so let's understand that the important issue is witness and relationship are both very important biblically, but we're each gonna have to make our decision at that time. And here's my advice to you. When you make your decision, don't look back. Make it as a matter of good conscience, holding your witness and weighing that against your relationship. Make your decision and don't look back. Trust the Lord to work in this for good. And the rest of us, let's not second guess our, our brothers and sisters in Christ and the decision that they make. This is a hard enough decision for everyone to make, okay? Should I call people by their preferred pronouns or their preferred name? Vaughn Roberts, uh, this is another book that's about 1 16th of an inch thin and it is really worth reading as well. So if you only read two things, read the short ones. Take you 15 minutes. Perhaps you have an acquaintance, maybe someone who studies or works with you. He's from the UK, that's why this sounds a little odd to us. Whom you know to be transgender for some reason. How you will react will very much depend on the nature of the relationship. And I love his practicality. If it's someone we know more closely, we might say something. Broach this subject. If it's someone we really don't know, why would we bring it up? You know, I kind of like that. Oh, hey, you don't know me, but walking down the street, I happen to notice that you appear to be transgender, and I'd just like to share with you what's wrong with that. Okay, I'm being facetious, of course, but he makes a good point. Some of whether or not you need to be a witness, again, it's all about witness and relationship, witness and friendship. We need to be a witness, but we're not gonna have an effective witness to somebody I don't even know. I'll address an issue, that way, but I won't address a person that way. But if it's someone you know, you have a relationship at some point and in some proper way, you will be able to balance those two things. Does that make sense? So he says, because transgender issues can present in such an obvious way, we might be tempted to put them in some kind of special category. But in reality, they are just like you and me and anyone else, broken sinners in need of God's love and forgiveness. This is the one place I'm gonna take a major exception to, to something that one of my own quotes has to say. I wanna, this may sound like a small distinction, but it's a big distinction. I'm not saying he's wrong, his point is well made. Is like, I too was in rebellion against God. I'm not here to judge you and tell you, oh, you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. That is not my job. You and I have a lot in common, brother or sister, in the sense that you may be in rebellion against God, but I really want you to know how much he loves you. And I was too, and I want you to know what he did for me. But what I don't agree with is we are not both broken sinners. One of us is a repentant sinner and one is not, and that makes all the difference. Now you may say, Terry, Christians still sin. They do, read Romans chapter six. Christians commit sin, they are not committed to sin. 
We no longer have a sin identity. Does that mean we're better people? Oh, heavens, no, it doesn't mean we're better people. Does it mean, oh, I'm holier than thou? Heavens, no. The only reason that we are reconciled to God is because of Jesus Christ. It was nothing that I did. I have no reason to condemn you and say, by the way, I'm a better person than you are. No, I just happen to have repented, which means I have turned and I'm going a different direction than you were going. But I wanna be careful because it's easy today for hear people say, oh, well, everybody sins. And what's the implication? They never complete that. The implication is, you're no better, you're a Christian, but you're a sinner too. That's not true. It's true that you're no better, but it's not true that you are committed to sin as well. You understand? Once you repent, you turn and say, Lord, I wanna crucify the old self and I wanna be your woman, I wanna be your man, I wanna be committed to you. You begin this journey of restoring the masterpiece and you are not the same. The scripture says you have been transformed from death to life, but hear me, that does not mean you can look at this person and say, I am holier than thou, I am better than you. It's, you know what, I too once was in rebellion against God please hear my story. I cannot wait to tell you about the God who loves you. Do you understand the humility in that? But it's not exactly the same. In speaking with transgender people, love, wisdom, and respect are the watchwords. And in my opinion, this is Vaughn Roberts' opinion, respect will mean calling someone by the name they choose to be called by. Christians really differ on this and we need to give each other some grace. Once again, Witness, relationship. You can make a very sound argument that calling someone by pronouns that express a gender that is different than their biological gender lacks integrity, that it is affirming a lie and that is not loving because it is not truthful. And love is always truthful. However, you can also make a very good point and says, I'm going to do this out of respect because I'm not going to throw away my witness, but I'm going to prioritize the relationship. Christians do both of those positions. I would urge you to really carefully think about this because I, I, I understand that both of those are valid things to say. If you're on one side or the other, you probably don't think the other side's valid. But once again, we gotta, be, we gotta give each other a little grace. This is a balancing act here that people are making. Let's not assume that if you call someone by their pronouns, you've jettisoned your witness, even though someone else might say, well, I think it's more important in this case to have your witness, fair enough. Or vice versa that, oh, if you won't call somebody by their pronouns, you're just a hater. That is, we gotta give each other a little more grace in this balancing act. I tend to personally lean a little bit more towards relationship and just being polite, but I completely understand the fact that, uh, I mean, think about it this way. I had a sister who had an imaginary friend when we were little. Now, everybody in this family knew your imaginary friend is imaginary. And so being the kind of child I was, I decided that I would just convince her that her imaginary friend was imaginary. But after getting spanked twice by my mom for doing that, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna do relationship. It's all about the relationship with my sister. My point to you not to be facetious is simply this, is 
Let's be gracious to each other. Everybody's trying to navigate this balance pretty well, okay? So that's gonna be a personal choice that you will make. I personally am very comfortable as far as I am able, I cannot remember everybody's name in here. I am not gonna remember everybody's pronouns too. Let's just be honest, all right? So please don't be throwing your pronouns at me because I can't get all the names yet. But again, I'm not trying to be facetious, but my point is this, is a little mutual respect goes a long way, okay? And so I think respect for me would probably weigh out. But on the other hand, I, I do not take it lightly that that is affirming something that isn't true. And it's just, diff it's a difficult situation. But that's gonna be a matter of your conscience and let's try not to second guess each other too much. How should I navigate a secular work environment? I have a lot to say about this and not enough time to say it, but here's the principle. Um, here's a clear, in my view, a biblical example of how to deal with this. First Corinthians chapter five, let me tell you what's happening in the church. And these are all Christians. Some of you are asking this question about non-Christians, and I, I totally get that. First, you are not gonna be popular. Let's just get over that and realize that they hated Jesus, they'll hate you too. You're gonna get marginalized, you're gonna get called names for your witness. But here's something that's gonna temper this a little bit and make you a little less uncomfortable. In the church in Corinth, they had a kind of anything goes. We're Christians now, we're forgiven. We can pretty much do whatever we want to do. They had a guy who steals his father's wife, his stepmother, and she decides she likes the son better than the dad, and so she runs off with the son, and they all stay in the church. Well, that's awkward at the potluck, right? I mean, it's kind of awkward. And so they're bragging about it like, look how progressive we are. We Christians are awesome. You guys ought to all become Christians. This is so good. We are free, free, free in Christ. Okay, that's what's happening, literally. Listen to what Paul says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality in your congregation of a kind that even the pagans don't do this. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? This is not a lecture about church discipline. I just need to get to my point. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit and I have passed judgment on the one who did this. When you assembled in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that his sinful nature may be destroyed so his spirit can be saved. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? This is Jesus again. That sin tends to infect uh, congregations. Get rid of the old yeast because you are a new batch with new yeast. So, but then he goes on and right after that, though, he clarifies one thing. Now, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. In other words, you can't let people who are not living a Christian lifestyle be teaching Sunday school. Okay, I'm just making this up. But the point is, is like, whoa, wait a minute. Are you really you trying to have one foot in self and one foot in the kingdom, or have you actually followed Christ? I mean, his point is you can't do that. I mean, it's not like you would let someone come into your house and say, oh, why don't you be a tutor to my children and bring the cocaine with you? That's great, you know, introduce them to that as well. I mean, again, I'm being silly, but the point is, this is God's family. But he said, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with these people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immortal, 
immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. What's his principle? His principle is in the body of Christ for those who claim that I have died to self, I am following Christ. Doesn't mean I don't sin, just means you know where my commitment is, you know that I am a repentant sinner. Just like David, if I sin, I'll confess, I'll turn from it, and I am forgiven, and off I continue to walk. If you see this kind of sin in this body, then we owe it to each other's family to rescue each other from that. But when you're in your work environment, and these are not people that are following Christ, well, I have no problem with you. Do you see what he's saying? He's not saying, I don't think what you're doing is wrong. He just says, I don't feel any need to lecture you about what you are doing is wrong. I disagree, but you aren't purporting to follow Christ. So my point is, is that as a Christian in a secular workplace, you are called to be a witness, but you are not called to say, oh, by the way, I notice you drink too much and you're greedy. I know you watch porn and I'm pretty sure that you might be something else. That is not what you're called to do. It's like expect worldly people to live like worldly people. Fair enough? Now, when it ever comes up and they say, what do you think? Well, we Christians have a very different point of view on greed. We have a very different point of view on money. We have a very different point of view on forgiving grudges. We have a very different point of view on sexuality. And you might then want to say, we kind of have what we think is a much more life-giving thing and then tell the biblical story, right? But the point is, in a secular world, you don't have an obligation to correct people's behavior. Like in the body, we have an obligation to each other to help each other along. All of us are gonna stumble. All of us are gonna need a hand up at some point. But people in your workplace that aren't believers, you have no obligation. You have an obligation to witness to your faith, but you don't have an obligation to say, oh, by the way, did I tell you guys that I'm a Christian and you're all going to hell? Just wanted you to know that. Now, who has the donuts? You know, let's get on with the meeting, you know? You see what I'm saying? I want you to take a little pressure off yourself and say, look, I don't agree with these people, but what I'm doing here today is I'm a professional accountant. I'm a professional photographer. I'm a professional of this, and I'm gonna behave with you in a professional way in this business. That's not compromising my beliefs, but I don't expect you to behave the way my brothers and sisters in Christ do. So I don't know if that's horribly helpful to you, but that's a principle that I gather from this passage. As Paul's saying, oh my goodness, there are two different standards. If you say you're following Christ, then we owe it to each other to help each other along. If you don't say you follow Christ, all I owe you is to love you. And by that, I mean, I'll do what's good for you if I can. And if that means if I have a chance, I'll tell you my story of what Christ did in my life. But it'll also say, even if you're living a life I don't agree with at all, I'll still do good to you if I can do good to you. Does that make sense? That's what we owe unbelievers. So I realize we're kind of out of time. Apologize for that. These are the most common questions I get asked. I know you have dozens more. But I would simply say, look for biblical principles to guide us. Balance your witness with your relationships, truth and grace, witness and relationships. And for heaven's sakes, let's be gracious to each other because we are all really trying to balance those two things. We won't always get it right. And sometimes you may get it right. And I didn't think you did, but you did. 
The last thing I'd probably say to you is, well, I actually have one more thing to say to parents, is God plays a very long game. Never give up hope. Never give up hope. My bias is stay in relationship, not at the expense of your beliefs, not at the expense of your witness. There is no relationship in a one-way relationship. If there's not mutual respect, if my brother says to me, look, I'm transgender, and if you don't accept me the way I am, you don't love me, and I want no relationship with you, I can't have a relationship with him. But we could have a relationship if he says, we disagree. And so well, let's each set some boundaries here, but you're still my brother and I still love you. We can have a relationship. My bias is stay in relationship. You're getting it, my opinion now. I'm not telling you this is what the Bible says, but I believe God plays a long game and I believe relationship matters. And so I tend to have a bias on the side of relationship. But again, it's a balance. It's not an either or situation. Last word, uh, I love these words to parents because I know that a lot, there are a lot of hurting people out there, but the people that don't get talked about very much, I mean, I know when you've got a, a person who is uh, undergoing gender reassignment surgery or you have someone who has a gay lifestyle or has a same-sex wedding, I understand those are real human people and real human events. But the forgotten people oftentimes, now I'm just speaking to you personally, are the parents. Parents love their children. <laughs> parents love their children. And this is hard for parents too. And so I wanna close with this. This is Sadusky and Yarhouse. And this is talking about gender identity, but it could just, it could be the same with sexuality or anything else. First thing, we want you to be able to find and confide in people you can trust with what you are facing as a family. We don't want you to feel you have to go into the closet because a loved one has shared their experience of gender identity gay identity, you know, addiction, you know, add on to this word with you or with others in your community. Number one, we want you to know that you have a loving community who will be with you in this. We cannot be judgmental of people who, who parents who are hurting and saying, you should have done this differently, you should have done that differently. By the way, I don't think you should go to that same sex wedding. Or by the way, I think you should go to that same sex wedding. In other words, I really feel this strongly. Let's recognize the parents, this is a difficult thing. Second, we don't want you to blame yourself for your loved one's questions surrounding their gender identity. We really do not understand the origins of diverse gender identities or sexuality issues, but that has not kept people from laying blame on parents and parents blame themselves. Always, what could I, what should I have done differently? There's a lot of pain in this. We do not see questions about gender identity as a reflection on you as parents or on your faith or your walk with Christ. That's not how this works. Take the long view with your teen or adult or brother or sister or aunt or uncle or whatever. They are going to be facing difficult decisions and it would be better if they had you as a resource to them in years to come. So let's try to stay in relationship with them. This is also my bias. I, I agree with this very much if it can be mutual, that demonstrates respect for them, but is also the kind of relationship where you can ask honest questions and seek answers together. So to the parents out there wrestling with this, I know there's a lot of pain, a lot of people, but parents don't often get talked to. Your 
fellow believers are your family and we are there with you and for you and we are not here to second guess you and we want you to know this is not your fault that God really is sovereign and God works in all things for good and do not ever give up. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening to this series and uh, share it with your friends if you'd like, but thank you very much.